everybody. Oh, good morning, everybody. Oh, all right. Hey, <laughs> thank you. All right. Hey, you know it's all right. Just in case anybody's tired and will we'll wake up, doesn't hurt in the morning. That's for sure. Well, uh, if you are new with us, um, we are glad that you're here. If you're visiting, we're also glad you're here. We are going through the sermon series, The King and His Kingdom. And what we've been doing is we're going through the book of Matthew from beginning to end. And we're actually nearing its end because we're going to be in chapter 27 today. So we're getting really close to the end. Uh, But there's a lot of good stuff, so we hope you keep coming back. Uh, But as we begin this morning, um, I have a question to ask you. Really kind of two questions. Uh, So follow along with me here. Have you ever been caught doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing? Or got caught not doing something that you should have been doing or should have done? Well, if you can relate with me, then uh, this will obviously hopefully connect with you really well because this was me recently. <laughs> and uh, I, I was busted. It was me, you know, and I, and I own it, and I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> um, well, one morning, uh, I was leaving for work, and I was supposed to gate off uh, one of the stairways that goes up to our uh, bedrooms and because our dogs like to go upstairs, and because our dogs love my wife and I, they leave us presents in our bedroom to show their love for us, and they do this every time. So for me, I'm the last person out. It's my job to close the gates, uh, but instead of recently closing and latching the gate, I kind of just creaked it all the way to the end to make it look like it was closed and latched, but I didn't do it. Um, And so later that day, my beautiful wife came home from work, and she found that the gate was open and that the dogs had gone upstairs, and they were thankful that day for my wife and myself, if you know what I mean. And so she brought this situation to my attention because this unfortunately had happened many times, um, and it's all my fault, 100%. And knowing I was wrong, which I was, I uh, quickly apologized, kind of like this. You know, one of these, I'm sorry, baby. I was just busy this morning. And it was kind of one of those half-hearted, you know, like just get you off my back, you know, type of things, and let's move on. And uh, she knew this apology wasn't, you know, I wasn't much myself, and it wasn't wholehearted. And I knew that too, because this gate ha- this situation has happened many times, many times, and I have failed many, many times to respect her reasonable request and to latch it. Um, But my response to getting caught is what was not good. All right, and that's kind of what we're looking here. I got caught, and I I knew this time because it happened over and over and over. I couldn't just give an excuse of, you know, I was busy. I didn't get a chance to do it because it takes literally one second to do this. So I knew I couldn't do it. So at least being the good guy that I am, I was like, all right, I'll at least acknowledge that I was partly wrong here, and I'll drop a I'm sorry on top of an excuse just to make things a little bit better. You're a good guy, Jeff. You did good that time. So that's, that's what I did. But the problem is I only had a slight remorse for this, slight remorse because I got caught. I was not truly repentant in the slightest. And I did not take time to think how I might have hurt my wife's feelings by not doing the small reasonable things that I had been asked to do. Nor did I take time to show her that her quest was very reasonable, that it was good and beneficial for us, and that I simply did not make it a priority. 
Because if I had truly been repentant, I would have sat her down. I would have taken time to put myself in her shoes to see my actions and how my responses wounded her. I would have sincerely apologized. I would have named my specific actions, my motivations that were wrong, and then I would have come up with a way or plan to respect her and her requests in the future. And then I would ask, would you please forgive me? So do you see the difference between how I responded and how I should have responded when I was confronted with my sin? You see, remorse is being sorry you got caught. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop what you're doing, to change your behavior, and then to ask for forgiveness. Remorse is being sorry you got caught, feeling of guilt or shame. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop what you're doing, to change your behavior, and to ask for forgiveness. Because it's with these distinctions that we're going to go into our passage today, and we're going to see Judas, and we're going to see how he responds. And we're going to ask a question, well, how does he? And we're hopefully going to learn something from that this morning. And so it's with these definitions, I hope you keep them in mind as we go through our passage in Matthew 27. Uh, But before we get there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us to be a people here that are humble, that are teachable, that are wise in our dealings with our spouses, our neighbors, our friends, our children, our co-workers. Lord, we live in a culture that feeds on being busy and that often reflects in how we live our lives, being too busy for you, too busy for others, and too busy, Lord, to think about how our sin affects other people and how it displeases you. Lord, we don't take much time, really, um, to truly consider the weightiness and the impact of our sins and how they displease you. Lord, give us greater depth, give us greater insight into our sinful hearts and minds so that we might turn to you, ask for forgiveness time and time again when we wrong you and when we wrong others. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Bring circumstances into our lives that challenge us to grow deeper in you. Help us to see how great our sins truly are so that we will begin to appreciate and to love, Lord, you more because you are awesome, you are gracious, and you are merciful. Lord, change us, shape us. We need you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen, amen. Well, uh, for those of you who have not been with us um, last week, last Sunday uh, we heard from one of our pastors, Tom Rubino, and Tom was talking about uh, Peter and how cowardly Peter was when he was recognized as being a Galilean and a follower of Jesus. Because as we know, Peter denied Jesus three times, right? Even to a little girl. When others recognized Jesus, he says, no, I don't know Jesus. I don't know this guy. I had nothing to do with him. And so he denies Jesus three times. And we're told that Peter would do this, and that the third time when Peter denies Jesus, knowing him, being one of his followers, that the rooster would crow. And we heard last week that after this third denial, as the rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter, they locked eyes across the high priest's courtyard. And I got to imagine that probably sent a chill down Peter's neck. Um, That would have been a rough thing to realize what he said was going to happen, happened. 
Because if you remember Peter, Peter was this guy who's all puffed up and is like, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can for you, Lord. I will die for you. I'll care for you. I'll even chop people's ears off for you. No, I will never deny you. But yet, this is what happens in the face of difficulties. He caves. He denies Jesus. And that's what we saw last week. He, he left and he wept bitterly because he realized what he had done and what was going to happen to Jesus. And so that's where we left off last week. The reason I give you this kind of brief context is because our author, Matthew, he wants to draw a contrast between Peter and Judas. And we see this contrast because this situation with Peter happens at the end of chapter 26, and now we're going to see Judas at the beginning of chapter 27. So Matthew wants to show us that both of these guys, Peter and Judas, they both deny Jesus. But the difference is, is one is remorseful and one is repentant. Because later on we see that Jesus fully restores and cares for Peter. But we're going to see something a little different with Judas. So it's with this background in mind that we're going to take uh, a chance to now look at our text. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. That's where we're going. But for our first point, we're going to be looking at just verses 1 and 2. So if you'll follow along in your Bibles or in your bulletins, let's take a look at these first two verses. When morning came, all of the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Well, what we have here is an official trial by the Sanhedrin to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and to sentence him to death. And you say, well, who is the Sanhedrin? What are they? Good question. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 men plus the high priest who kind of served as the president of the group. And these 70 members, they consisted of the chief priests, scribes, and elders of Israel. And they would try religious cases as well as some criminal cases. And so all these men, they came together this Friday morning for one purpose. That was to make sure that Jesus was convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death. These men were unified by one single thought. Let's kill this guy, Jesus. We got to get rid of this guy. So this was an official meeting to bring about a judicial action against Jesus. Jesus was brought to these men so that they could legally declare him guilty. And so in our account in Matthew, in these first two verses, we don't have a lot of details about this council meeting. But if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke records for us some more details. Let me read those to you. Luke says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, they gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man has been seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Well, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, well, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, the Roman governor. This is the highest religious court of the land, and they have just conspired against an innocent man to kill him, to lock him up. These men in Sanhedrin, they were 
comprised of the religious folks, right? These chief priests, these scribes, these elders. These are the people who are supposed to be shepherding Israel. They're supposed to be ones who are caring for them pastorally, spiritually encouraging them. And they're in the business of capital punishment. And particularly against an innocent man. What is going on here with these guys? Jesus hasn't killed anybody. He hasn't hurt anybody, has he? No, he hasn't. He's healed people. He's risen people from the dead. He has saved people and he's cared for them. This is not right, one bit. But technically, the elders, chief priests, and scribes, they couldn't kill someone themselves. They needed the Romans to do this for them because the Romans were the ones who were in charge. And so what did they do to remedy this? Well, they brought Jesus to Pilate then. And so as they took him to the Romans, the Romans would do then the Jews' dirty work. But one of the advantages of the Romans doing the killing was that Jesus would be crucified in accordance with Roman law rather than being stoned in accordance with Mosaic law. And so see, the, 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 the extra help that the Romans give and the crucifixion is because being crucified means being hung on a tree. And biblically, that means being cursed. You are guilty. You are cursed in God's eyes. And that's what they want. Not only do they want Jesus to die, they also want him to be discredited in the eyes of his disciples and his followers. So this was good stuff. If they crucify him, he's cursed, he's guilty, and he's going to die. We get rid of him. This is great. These men are truly sick. Evil is the only word to describe their hearts and their actions. And that's what Matthew wants you to get here in these first two verses. He wants to show you the people who are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. He wants to show you their dark hearts and that this is a judicial action, legally declaring Jesus guilty of blasphemy. But Matthew doesn't stop there only naming the Sanhedrin and Pilate. He's going to go a step further and pointing out another culprit who also has blood on his hands as well. And so we're going to see that in this next point as we look at verses 3 and 10. This is titled Remorse or Repentance. Let's read in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you, you said, you know, we're going to decipher Judas's response. And so I'm going to ask you, is Judas remorseful or repentant? And keep in mind, remorse is being sorry you got caught, feeling a little guilty, a little bit of shame. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop what you're doing, to change your behavior, and to turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. So which response does Judas have? Which is easy, remorseful or repentant? What do you say? He's remorseful, isn't he? Yeah, he feels sorry. 
feels a little shame, and he feels guilt. But what we have before us is really quite strange. Judas, this is the guy who betrayed Jesus, who followed him for all those years, who stabbed him in the back for 30 pieces of silver, and now he's had a change of heart, a change of feelings. What's going on here? He feels remorse for what he's done? Well, what Matthew wants to show you is that, yes, he's remorseful. But Judas is not repentant. For if Judas had been repentant, he would have wept bitterly, and he would have done whatever he could have done to get to Jesus, to get a message to him, or to go to him and cry out, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. I have wronged you. Would you forgive me? But is that what Judas does? No. It's not what he does. Instead, Judas revels in his own despair. He looks to himself for a way out of the guilt and shame that he's feeling. And I bet he's probably feeling pretty guilty and pretty shameful right now because he knows Jesus is innocent. He even says it, right, to the elders and chief priests? This guy is innocent. And we have led this innocent man to be tortured, to be mocked, and to be killed. And instead of Judas doing the hard work of of humbling himself, of staring and looking at his sin and thinking about it and how evil it was and being truly repentant and, and turning to Jesus to ask for forgiveness, what does he do? He takes the easy way out. He hangs himself. Because the reality is it's easier to check out of this life than to live in it with all of its hardships. To, to ask all the people that we hurt to ask them for forgiveness, to humble ourselves of all the pride that we have. And would you forgive me? It's harder, right, to forgive yourself for some of the things that you've done, that you've thought. That's hard work. It's easier to take your life than to stare directly at your sin for what it is, to see its evil, to see its malice, to see how it impacts you, how it impacts others, and how it displeases God. It's harder to do that and to ask for forgiveness because we all know that's hard work. That takes time, that takes effort, and we're busy people, aren't we? Well, we know that's hard work. And Judas, he made his choice. Instead of turning to Jesus, he turned to himself. And then he turned to the chief priests and elders for hope when he couldn't find it in himself. So when Judas went to the chief priests and elders to return the 30 pieces of silver, I kind of imagined him in, in great anguish, which I could imagine he would be in. And so he throws the money on the ground, and he says, take this money back, take this money back. And the chief priests and elders, they're probably like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, this is not on me. I don't know why you brought this in here. This is on you. Don't bring this in here, right? Kind of like as if they had nothing to do with this the whole time. Well, these are the religious leaders of Judea. What great men these are, right? What pastoral, wise men they are. And the counsel that they give is filled with encouragement and hope. And that they care for their beloved brother Judas, right? No. These are evil, hard-hearted men. And when they're faced with their sin, they just push it away. They use Judas to do their dirty work. And when he comes back to them, they cast him off like a piece of trash. That's what goes on. I imagine they respond this way because this is a reminder of their sin. The 30 pieces coming back and Judas coming back to their face. It's a reminder of what they've done. I'm sure also if by casting him off in the money, maybe there's plausible deniability that could go on here as well. I don't know. 
But I bet deep down inside, they feel a little something, that they know this is wrong. Because they just try to get him out quickly. You know, leave us. This is on you. This is not on us. I bet they respond that way because they know there's something wrong. But in the end, their rejection of, of Judas and the money doesn't really do much, right? Because we know Judas leaves the money and with the elders and chief priests, and now they have a problem of what to do with this money. And so this is how they respond. They say, it is not lawful to put them, the pieces of silver, into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Isn't this just a pitiful picture before us? These men, the godly men, the leaders, spiritual leaders, they're debating about what to do with this tainted money. You know, what the, you know the reality of this is the money was tainted in the first place when they took it out of the temple treasury to pay for this. It was tainted already. So what makes them think that, hey, it's more tainted now? No. It was, it was used for evil in the beginning. And so instead of talking about the money, these guys should have been repenting. Look at what we've done. This is terrible. You know, at least Judas was remorseful. At least he was remorseful. These guys do not even show remorse. They just squabble about what to do with this money. We can't put it in the temple treasury because it's blood money. Well, so what can we do with it? I got a great idea. I think this will benefit all of us. We can turn this lemon into lemonade. I think we've got something here. Uh, we've got a lot of folks who come to us during our religious observations and feasts. And so some of those folks, maybe who are poor or don't have family, sometimes they die and they don't have a place to be buried. So what we could do is let's use this money and let's do something good with it. Let's go ahead and buy a field so that they could be properly buried. And, you know, maybe we'll look, maybe we'll look good in the process, right? You know, maybe that'll shed some favor with us and the people. You see what's going on? These guys are stone cold. They only care about themselves and how they look to other people. They're not dealing with their sin. They're not repentant. They're not even remorseful. They just cast it aside. And I'm sure you're thinking, or hopefully thinking something similar, right? Because it's just human nature to be disgusted with this kind of behavior. Right? That's, that's a proper response. But if we're honest with ourselves, don't we do this in a lot of ways too? When we're confronted with sin, just kind of, you know, move it along or try to rationalize it or push it off or act like nothing happened or, or maybe let me just minimize it. It's really not as bad as what you thought it was, right? Or maybe we'll do something morally good to make up for this just to cover it up, right? Or how many of us think, you know, honestly, I'm a pretty good guy. This is not that big of a deal. I'm not going to spend too much time thinking about it. But how many of us think this is a holy and righteous God that we are accountable to, who loves us and calls to account of all of our sins? How much of us think of that when we think of our sin? Because I think many of us think, oh, my sin's really not hurting anybody too bad. Maybe just myself, but not hurting anybody else. So it's really not that big of a deal. Wrong. Just like it is for me, it's the same for you. This is a big deal. When we are confronted with any sin, the only proper response is to repent. It really is. Whether that comes from a tickling of your conscience, like by the Holy Spirit, or whether it's somebody who comes to your face and confronts you. 
whether that's your children, spouse, coworker, neighbor, whatever it is, the proper response is to own it, to think about it, and to turn and ask for forgiveness. Because we're biblically called to take time to think about our sin, how it impacts us, how it impacts others, and how it displeases God. And that takes a little bit of time. And I know we're busy people, but guess what? This is important. We need to take time because this impacts our relationship with others as well as with God. Because being remorseful, it simply isn't enough. Just feeling a little bit of shame and guilt isn't enough. What did feeling shame and remorse, what did that do for Judas? The only response to sin is to throw yourself before a holy and righteous God, before Jesus, to turn to him, to turn away from sin, and say, Lord, I'm a sinful man, I'm a sinful woman, and I need you. Will you please forgive me, help me work through this? And you all know, as well as I do, we are a sinful group of people. We truly are. If you think about your motivations and your inner thought life and some of our actions, we sin often. I do. I know you do. And so, because this is true, and we're people that sin often, we should be asking for forgiveness a lot. We should be repenting a lot, sincerely. But I want to ask you all, in the past week, when you sinned against your spouse or your children, did you ask him or her, would you forgive me? In the past month, when you sinned against a friend or a, a family member or somebody you just came in contact with, did you ask him or her, would you forgive me? In the past year, when you sinned against a coworker or even maybe a neighbor, did you ask him or her, I'm sorry for doing that. Would you please forgive me? In your lifetime, you've sinned against a lot of people. I've sinned against a lot of people. Have you ever asked any of them, would you please forgive me for what I've done? If not, what does that say about your pride? What does that say about the brand of Christianity that you're selling to other people? What does that say about your relationship with Jesus to your family, to your children, to the folks you come in contact with? If you're too prideful to ask for forgiveness... Well, I know I struggle with this, and I know many of you do too. And we need to think about this often and be reminded, and this is not fun, because none of us like to be confronted with our sin. I don't, I know you don't. But we need to take time to think about this. If we're going to be biblically responsible and we're going to love Jesus, he calls us to come to him time and time again, because we need him. And so, just as a helpful reminder on the back of your bulletin, there is a daily devotional that you could read tomorrow or later on in the week just to help you think about this issue of when I'm confronted with sin, how do I respond? Am I remorseful or am I sincerely repentant? But the other issue too is, you know, if you need something else, you can just go to the website and listen to the sermon again too. I'm telling you, think about this issue of how do you respond to your sin? Are you remorseful or are you actually repentant and do you ask folks for forgiveness? Because this is really a big deal. And the reality, reality is that we fail often. But you know what the good news is? Is despite all of our sin, despite all of our pride, 
and the sin of also Judas and the Sanhedrin that we have right before us in Matthew, God is in total control. He is sovereign, and he is orchestrating all these events to happen in the way that he wants them to happen. Even though it seems like there is chaos ensuing all around Jesus in this whole situation, these pieces of the puzzle, they're falling perfectly in place for God's great redemptive plan. And we're going to see this, right? Look at verses 9 and 10. The act of the elders and chief priests of purchasing the field of blood, this wasn't just a sinful act, it was on their part, but this is actually also fulfilling scripture. This is good in a way. So then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. God is literally orchestrating these events. This prophecy that comes from us from Zechariah and Jeremiah, this is happening in real time. The sin of the elders and the priests is actually being used for a greater, grander purpose. And what seems like a small detail to them is actually just another piece of puzzle being put perfectly in its place by God. Even though these men are working hard to extinguish the flame that Jesus is bringing what they're really doing is they're throwing gasoline on that fire. And that fire is going to consume them. Why does Matthew tell all of this? He wants us to show that Jesus' death is not an accident. All the events leading to his death, they're not accidents, nor are they really tragedies, because these are ushering in the greatest event that this earth has ever seen. Because with each prophecy that's fulfilled, Satan's noose, gets a little tighter. These events are victories that will lead to the greatest victory that we will ever encounter witness. And that's good news for you. That's good news for me. Because this is a God at work. This is a God who's using evil for ultimate good. And he's in control. And so if this is the kind of God that we have, why do many of us think, my sin is just too much for him? My sin is too great. I'm too sinful to be saved. Don't you see, there is no sin, there is no evil that is dark enough that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He loves you. And if you come to him, he will accept you every single time. He'll put his arm around you and say, you're mine, I'm going to help you through this. So why do we delay in coming to Jesus? Why do we keep our sins to ourselves? Why do we look to others to, to justify us, to help us with, with some of these sins? Why do we continue in our, our futile efforts to rectify these sins on our own power? Because the Bible's calling us to turn to Jesus, where he will give you peace, he will give you rest, he will give you hope. Because when you do, every single time you sin and you say, Lord, forgive me, he forgives you. He does not count it against you. He's going to help you. And that's a God that is worth trusting, worth loving, worth spending time with because he is good and he is gracious. Church, I'm telling you, repent and find peace and hope in Jesus Christ because that's what you will find. Because if you turn to yourself, let me tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find death. You're going to find guilt and shame that lingers and lasts. 
feeling sorry is not going to make you feel whole again. It's not going to bring peace or restitution. You need to feel sorry, but you need to say, you know what, this is my sin. And Jesus, I need help. Jesus, would you forgive me? Or the person who you've hurt, please forgive me. Because you will find hope, you will find peace and rest when you do. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. That's not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world, which is remorse, it produces death. Church, ask the Lord for the courage to see your sin as it truly is, to feel the weight of your sin, to soften your heart so that you might take your sins before a holy and righteous God and ask for forgiveness. Because oftentimes, many of us don't feel the weight of our sins. We don't feel that shameful. We, we don't see, oh, it's not that bad. And I'm telling you, it is. And my stuff is too. And we need to turn to God who will love us and help us every single time. Because you hurt other people, I hurt other people. And there are consequences to those sins and to those hurts and wounds that we distribute. The reality is, is when you see that your sin is big, you're going to appreciate how awesome and big God truly is because he is so much greater, so much bigger than your sin. And when you see your sin as big, you'll see your Savior as big and as awesome and as gracious and merciful and loving. And when you see that, you're going to want to come to him more because you know he accepts you every time. And that's good. You know, see, Jesus endured all of these trials that we're reading about, all these events at the end of Matthew, so that you and I might be free. That we might not have to carry the weight and the bondage of our sin that we've inherited but that we also incur on others and ourselves. He suffered that so you wouldn't have to suffer through this whole entire life. He's here to help. And he died so that you would not have to die spiritually and pay the penalty that he came to pay. And so I tell you all, come. Come to him and come often. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find freedom you're going to find peace. You're going to find hope because Jesus loves you. He loves you and he loves you so much. And we need to be reminded of that because we are sinful people. But God is so good. He will love you every single time you come back to him. And so the choice is before you. Judas chose remorse. And you know what he found? He found death. The choice is before you. When you're confronted with your sin, what are you going to choose? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, I am a man who sins frequently. I hurt people's feelings. Lord, I sin against my family. Lord, I sin against folks here at this church, folks outside of these walls. My inner life and thinking is sinful and evil, Lord. And I need your help. Lord, help me feel the weight of my sin. Help bring circumstances, Lord, in my life that I would see you, Lord, as gracious and merciful and that I would see myself, Lord, for what I am, a sinner in need of great grace.
Lord, I pray that same prayer for, Lord, our people here today. We are a busy people who don't take much time to think about how much our sin hurts us, hurts others, and how it displeases a holy and righteous God. And we need to be reminded that we need to stop, that we need to turn to Jesus to find hope, to find peace, to find restitution. Lord, there is life in coming to you. You give us life freely. I pray that we would be a people who would humble ourselves, who would not be prideful, that we would admit when we're wrong, we would ask for forgiveness. And if that takes trials and hardships, Lord, to break us down and to grind us down, I pray that you would bring them. Because we need to be, Lord, a holy, righteous people who serve you the way you deserve to be served. And also, Lord, in serving you, we find peace, love, and joy. Lord, you are good, you are faithful, and you love us all the days of our lives, even though we sin. We love you. The church says, amen.